Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Okay. Uh, you know, New Year, New Year resolutions. Um, we, we come, you know, into a new year with lots of plans. And so I want to orient us a little bit this morning as we continue uh, through our study of the book of Mark by beginning with a true-false question. I'm not going to make you raise hands. I just want you to answer this in your own heart. True or false, this phrase is found in the Bible. Okay, this phrase is found in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Okay, just get your answer in your head before I give you the answer. And the answer is false. That phrase is not found in Scripture. It was written by Algernon Sidney in the 1600s and was published in America by Benjamin Franklin in his Poor Richard's Almanac in 1732. But it has become part of American culture, and over time it's been Christianized and brought into kind of the mainstream as, a, as a, this biblically um, hijacked idea in some sense. Now, the reason that so tr- it's so tricky, this phrase, is because almost everything else in our life works this way. It sounds very plausible that God would help those who help themselves. Uh, The early bird gets the worm, the victor gets the spoils, uh, proper preparation prevents poor performance, right? Like if you've been to uh, anything in Charlotte, you've heard some version of that. So one would very naturally think, well, I don't know if that was in the Bible or not, but it's certainly true. I mean, God does help those who help themselves, right? Well, the Word of God actually says that's not right, that the opposite is true, that God goes out of His way to bring us in touch with our need. Proverbs 3.4, James 4.6, and 1 Peter 5.5 all say the exact same thing. And the thing they all say is, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble, which means that King Solomon, Jesus' younger brother, and the apostle upon whom Jesus said he would build his church all agree that this is a very important principle. God stands in opposition to those who are trying to help themselves. And why is that? Well, because as our passage that we're going to look at today makes abundantly clear, From God's perspective, you and I are helpless. Look at verse 34 of our passage. It says this, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Well, what does that mean? Right? What happens to sheep when they're without a shepherd? Well, they die. Sheep are so domesticated that they literally cannot survive in the wild on their own. They no longer have any natural defenses. 
Um, if uh, you're out walking you know, in the woods and you come up on a sheep, there is nothing in your heart that thinks, oh, no, a sheep, right? I'm in danger. Wrong. Right? You think, oh, how did, this, how did this thing get here, right? Where's your, where's your home, little sheep? Where are you supposed to be? Um, and the reason is because sheep are truly so dumb that if they eat all the grass in a field, they will stand there and starve to death rather than look for other places to eat. There's no such thing as an alpha sheep, right? They have, they have no structure to their herds. There's, they just stay clumped up for safety reasons, but there's no like thought that goes into what they do at all. And so if you're the shepherd of sheep, what must you do for them? Well, you've got to do everything for them, right? You have to feed them. You have to herd them. You have to fence them in so that they don't wander off and die. You have to shear them so that they don't get overwhelmed by their natural growth of hair. Otherwise, they expire. And what we're discovering about ourselves in our passage today is that from God's perspective, we're sheep. We're helpless and hopeless without him. But the interesting thing is, just like sheep, we have no idea, right? We have no idea. We tend to, in fact, think that we bring a lot to the God game, that we can, like, manifest our own future and that we can willpower our way into greatness. But this is the thing that makes us so dangerous to ourselves. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. And it's why Jesus had to warn us, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? And this is the danger of the cultural moment we're in, right? YouTube uh, picks these kind of super inspirational figures like David Goggins or, you know, you know, pick your, pick your inspirational person. And, and, and what do you think? You think, oh yeah, man, that guy willpowered his way to greatness. He's become a celebrity. He's become affluent. He's uh, lost all this weight. He's super physically fit. But you just don't see the carnage behind it, right? That he's, on his, he's lost two marriages. He's on his third relationship. It's kind of weird. Um, and so it's easy to miss uh, where we end up we end up climbing ladders, but often when we get to the top of the ladder, we find out they're leaning against the wrong wall. Um, we've accomplished something, but we've ended up in a place that doesn't have anything to offer us. And so, how does our helplessness affect Jesus? Well, it moves him. Look at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, a large 
he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he began to teach them many things. To understand what's going on here, a little refresher is probably in order. You may recall from last week that Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth where he was rejected by the people he grew up with because they thought that he was simply too ordinary to be the Messiah. But in spite of that, Jesus chose to send out ordinary, uneducated disciples to go into uh, the, follow, the, the villages around Nazareth, the towns around Capernaum, and preach the good news. And these were their marching orders. We saw in Mark 6, 7 through 11. He summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If, that play, if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, then leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Notice what he did. He sent them out in weakness. He sent them out helpless. He said, don't take anything you need. Don't take any money. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take a tent. Don't take a backpack. Don't take any food. Go in a posture of total reliance on God alone. They were literally going to walk into a village without so much as a sandwich in their pocket and by faith announced that the people of that town needed to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand and then live on the hospitality of whoever invited them in. And what were the results? Well, the results were supernatural. Mark 6, 13 and 14. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. And so now they're back. They've returned to Capernaum where Jesus has his kind of headquarters, his launching place. And they're reporting to, to Jesus what has occurred. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done. They are currently the hottest thing in Israel. Even the king has heard about them. And so what does Jesus do with this moment of ministry success, this great launch to his public ministry after the rejection of his hometown, something that's become so well-known the king has heard about it in the capital? Does he say, hey, let's strike while the iron is hot. We've got to get going. I know you're tired, but now's the time. No, instead, he says to them, verse 31, come away by yourself to a remote place, and rest a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not have time to eat, so they went away in a boat by themselves to a remote place. Jesus sympathizes with the limitations of his apostles. He knows that they are tired and hungry. He understands that their ministry success, while exciting, is also emotionally draining and physically exhausting. And he says... Well done. Let's take a break. Does this fit with your image of God? 
I know several of you were influenced uh, by well-meaning, but maybe biblically misinformed ministers, whether it was in high school or college or shortly thereafter, who taught you, God wants you to do great things for Him by being superhuman in terms of how you become like a ministry machine and never take any time off. In fact, once I read in Christianity Today uh, where an author was writing, and he said this is about burnout. He said, a ministry friend of mine was concerned when two of his three sons began to stutter. He made an appointment for them to see a speech therapist who was also a psychologist and later had a conference himself. The minister said, the psychologist literally cursed me. He told me I was responsible for their speech defect and that I was ruining my boys' lives. He said, when was the last time you took your family on a vacation? Well, it had been a long, long time. I was too busy to take time with my family. I remember I used to say that the devil never takes a vacation, so why should I? And I never stopped to think that the devil wasn't to be my example. You see, Jesus understands this. The three original temptations of Jesus were to do something superhuman, right? Turn stones into bread, survive a leap off the top of the temple, become the ruler of the world. But instead, Jesus chose to pull aside to a quiet place and to rest in God's word to him. Mark 1.1 had said to him, 111 had said, God had said to him, you're my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When the shepherds first showed up, I mean, the angels first showed up to the shepherds, the announcement was, hey, I've got good news of great joy for you on whom God's favor rests, right? God likes you. He enjoys you. You don't have to earn his affection. It's something that he freely gives us. And Christ's confidence in his Father's unconditional affection gave him freedom to live within his limitations. When Jesus needed time away, he took it. Mark 1, 35-37, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place where he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you. Jesus was free from the opinions of other people. He was free to be needed, and he was free to need himself. When he got tired, Jesus was free to take a nap while other people worked. Mark 4, 35-38, On that day, when evening had come, he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and the other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so the boat was already being swamped, and he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. He was shameless, right? Because Jesus was truly humble. He had no pride. He couldn't be shamed. He was free to admit when he was tired and to take a nap. And he expects his disciples to do likewise. Because God understands our limitations. Psalm 103, 13 and 14. As the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we're dust. 
And he wants you to understand that too. Your limits are not a hindrance to him. In fact, they evoke his affection for us. And so, verse 32, when they went away in a boat by themselves to a remote place, this strange thing happened. Many people saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Jesus was aware that his disciples were fatigued, and so he's like, hey, let's get in a boat and go on a retreat. But as they're going, word gets out that they're on the move, and people see them, and the literally thousands of people start pouring out of the towns where the disciples have been doing all this ministry and running around the Sea of Galilee to try to get ahead of them. And Jesus can watch these people doing this, and he can see that they're exhausting themselves. And so he tells his disciples to kind of go ashore. And when he does, he lets them take a break, and he teaches all day, right? He's got energy. He knows they're exhausted. So they just get to kind of sit there and listen and watch him work and drink it in. Now, why would he do that? Well, he would do it because that's why he came. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What did it require of Jesus to become our good shepherd? It required of him everything. As Henry Nouwen says on the front, the quote on the front of your bulletin, he says this, let's not underestimate how hard it is to be compassionate. Compassion is hard because it requires the inner disposition to go with others to the place where they are weak, vulnerable, lonely, and broken. But this is not our spontaneous response to suffering. What we desire most is to do away with suffering by fleeing from it or finding a quick cure for it. God's not like that. Instead of remaining safely up in heaven where there is no sin, suffering, or death. Our compassionate king, our good shepherd, came down here and made himself nothing so that he could carry our burdens and do everything necessary to reconcile us with God. Because we were frail, Jesus took on flesh that we might be filled with his spirit. Because we were lowly, Jesus took on service so that we could become royalty in his kingdom. Because we were sinful, Jesus took on our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And because we were captive to death, he died, that we might have eternal life. So then, what is the work that God requires of us that we might be the people of his pasture. John 6, 28 and 29, a group asked Jesus this directly, what must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus says this, the work singular of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Did you catch that? The work of God is to believe Jesus. To believe him when he says we're like sheep without a shepherd, to believe him when he warns us that there's a way that seems right to us but leads to death, 
So if we try to find our lives by helping ourselves, we're going to end up losing them. To believe him when he says that he's the good shepherd who God sent to bring lost sheep home. To believe him when he says that he loves us with the same love the Father loves him with. To believe him when he lays down his life for his sheep and says, it's finished. That's it. The thing that was required has been accomplished. Well, how should that affect us on a practical level? Well, it should free us to admit our limitations, but it usually doesn't. Verse 35, when it grew late, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it's already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. I love this scene. This is so incredibly believable to me. Because these disciples started the day out excited and full of faith, telling Jesus all that God had done through them when they literally had no bread in their pockets. Jesus had sent them out and forbidden them to take a sandwich. And they had watched God do all this supernatural work. And they'd come back and they were super fired up about it. But now he is asking them to feed these people with nothing. And what do they do? They boomerang back to our default sin of self-reliance. And they live by sight instead of by faith. And they say to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Well, a denarius is a year's wages. And so in effect, what they're saying is, you're asking us to mortgage our future in order to do your will. What are you thinking? That, that is so impractical. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What a ridiculous ask. And so Jesus gently reminds them how it works. Verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they come back with very little. They found out that they had five and two fish. And so then what happens? Well, a miracle happens. Verse 39, then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. He picked up, they picked up twelve baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were five thousand men. You see what's happening here? A miracle is taking place, but most of the people who are experiencing the miracle can't see it because Jesus has his apostles break these 5,000 men, and if you count women and children, it was probably closer to 15,000 people, into little groups of hundreds and fifties. And then they would come to him, and he would take these five loaves and two fishes and he would hand them to the apostles to take back to the group to feed everybody in the group. And then the person would come back, and Jesus would do it again. 
and again and again and again. And so to many of the people sitting, they were just seeing that they were being fed. I mean, if you're, if you're 5,000 people deep and you're, this, is a, this is about 160 people, right? This would be one, this would be one section of what was happening, this right here. This would be the second group. Well, if you're five to 15,000 people, how many groups are there? Like, how far back is this thing taking place? Those people have no idea what's going on. They're just getting a free meal, and they're pretty fired up about it. But the apostles keep running out every time they, they feed a group. It's just enough to feed that group. But then there's the next group right here of 50. What am I going to Oh, I guess i got to go back to Jesus, and i got to go get some more. And then he gives them some more and more and more as they come to him again and again. Do you see what this means? It means that our weaknesses are no longer liabilities to be managed. They're opportunities to experience God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, the super accomplished apostle Paul had to learn this the hard way. When he had a weakness that he kept asking Jesus to get rid of, and this was Jesus' response. The Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong." When God tells us we need a rest, we rest. Even if our ministry is going great and hundreds of people are vying for our time, if we're tired, we get in the boat to go to the other side of the lake and we let Jesus handle ministry instead of trying to do it on our own. But when God tells us to enter impossible situations with limited resources, we go in. Even if there are 5,000 people who need to be fed and we've only got five loaves and two fish, Jesus can work with that. And he often will do more than we ask or imagine. But whatever we do, we place all that we are and all that we have in Jesus' hands and we let him call the shots. Now, when I was younger, this was very, very difficult for me. Because I'm a dreamer, I'm idealistic, I'm a visionary. And so I had a 30-page vision document that Matt Guzzi and I wrote when we started Hope, right? We had 42 people. I had almost more pages than I had people of ideas about what I was going to do with this thing, right? And, um, and Holly was tired. She had just had Davis. And Jen was tired. She just lost her mom. And I was frustrated, I felt like I was beating my head against a wall, and I was, because I was trying to climb a ladder, and it was on the wrong side of the wall, right? I was trying to climb this ladder of ministry success and great accomplishments and numbers and impact instead of trusting Jesus with our weakness and our weariness. And so uh, my loving friends had to rebuke me, and they were like, hey, Mark, you remember that real people looking to the real Jesus, real change thing? This is real. We're tired. This is real. We're sad. This is real. You can't do anything about it. 
Jesus is our only hope. Not you, not us, not bootstraps. And so I had a decision to make. Was I going to look to the real Jesus for real change in me and my addiction to accomplishment or not? Thankfully, over time, the Lord has slowly matured me. Part of that happened in my sabbatical I got to take in 2015 when I was really tired. And God said to me from Psalm 127, 1 and 2, Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the ones he loves. This psalm is actually about kids and parents and how much vain labor parents will do to get their kids to turn out the way they want. And it's an invitation to let God do the work instead of trying to do it for him. God showed me through this passage how futile it was to try to get him to do what I wanted and how fruitful it was whenever I served him by joining what he was already doing. During that same time, Bono, uh, lead singer of U2, my favorite band, had a similar experience and wrote about it in an interview, and this is what he said. A number of years ago, I met a wise man who changed my life. In countless ways, large and small, I was seeking the Lord's blessing. I was saying, you know, I have a new song, look after it. I have a family. Please look after them. I have this crazy idea, and this wise man said, stop. He said, stop asking God to bless what you're doing. Get involved with what God is doing, because it's already blessed. That's what Jesus invited his apostles to do in our passage when he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to his apostles to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied, and they picked up twelve basketfuls of pieces of bread and fish, and those who had eaten the loaves were five thousand men. Imagine how much faith it took to hand Jesus the five loaves and two fish when you were already exhausted and very, very hungry because you hadn't eaten because you'd been doing so much ministry. And then start organizing the crowd into groups of hundreds and fifties. It kind of feels like you're setting those people up for a riot. But in fact, you're setting everyone up to experience a tailor-made miracle. They are going to eat their fill. And in the end, Michael Card points out that this Greek word for basket is the one that we use for lunchbox. And so it seems like what happened at the end is when the, when the apostles collected what was left over, they ended up with each of them an individualized lunchbox of bread and fish. It was Jesus going out of his way to say, hey, I'm going to use you to feed other people, but I'm not going to forget about you. I'm going to make you a personal meal. And God can do the same thing for us. If you're already a follower of Christ, Jesus isn't asking you to do a miracle. 
He's asking you to trust him with the little that you have so that you can experience his ability to provide for you while using you to meet the needs of your neighbors. And if you're new to Christianity, then Jesus is asking you to let his people put you into a group where they can feed you with whatever he has given them for your good. Whoever we are, if we come to Jesus with our fatigue and our hunger and do whatever he tells us, the results will be both supernatural and deeply satisfying because in him we have a compassionate good shepherd who gives us exactly what we need and what we need is him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us enough to know us fully and care for us completely. We pray, Lord, as we uh, often are weary and hungry, that we wouldn't fall for the lie that we have to provide for ourselves, but that instead we would come to you as the giver of all good things. And we pray this in your name. Amen.